Now we come to Psalm 116. Psalm 116 is one of the great psalms of the Scripture. Some have said that it's next to the 23rd Psalm. And here you have a thanksgiving psalm. A man here is in distress. He calls upon God, and God hears in mercy. It's a love psalm. It's a hallel psalm. It is a simple psalm. And it speaks of the past, of the sufferings of Christ in the presence of death. Did you know that he sang this the night he was arrested? The day before he died, he sang this. I'd love to have heard him sing. Somebody said, I'd love to have heard him teach. I'd love to have heard him sing. And it was for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And he sang that night with great joy. And then it speaks of the future. It speaks of the deliverance of the remnant of Israel in the great tribulation period. And then it speaks of the present. It has a message for modern man, for the believer today. Now, this is what God wants you and me to know. It's a gracious word for those in distress and trouble. It'll relieve your anxiety. It'll dispel your doubts. And the Lord Jesus sang it the night before he was crucified. Now, in the first five verses, God hears. In verses 6 through 13, God helps. And in verses 14 to 19, God is holy. Will you listen to this? I love the Lord. It's a love song. I love the Lord. Have you ever told him that, that you love him? And and I think the most important factor in the Christian life is right here. Do you love the Lord Jesus? That's it. Do you love his person? Do you love him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Is there any communication with him? By the way, have you talked to him today? Is he vital and real to you? Not phony and pious religion today. The world's tired of that. Now, aren't you tired of it? And the Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. Whom having not seen ye love. And then he said to Simon Peter, Simon, lovest thou me? And unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. And then he says, I'm going to make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I've loved thee. And that's the church in Philadelphia. And I think that's the Bible-believing church today. And what is the basis of all this? I love the Lord. Why? He's heard me. Has God heard your prayer? Are we to pray audibly? Well, it says, God hath heard my voice. That means to pray audibly. I like to get in the car and ride along, talk to the Lord. Best place in the world. And believe me, you need to talk to the Lord driving here in Southern California these days. Now he says in verse 3, "...the sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of Sheol got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow." This is the desperate need of this man. It's our Lord on the cross. He knew what he was going through. He sang it that night. The sentence of death was upon him. And actually, it's on us. He didn't have to die. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down for you and me. You and I walked through the valley of the shadow of death all the time. Now listen to him. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. He cried out, Lord, save me. And he was heard. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. 
How wonderful this is. The Lord preserveth the simple. That'll include me, maybe you. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. Now, if you've experienced salvation and know that God today is merciful and that God has helped you and God has saved you, you know that he's going to continue to lead you along. I was brought low, and he helped me. How wonderful this. He's delivered my soul. This is a very wonderful section, by the way. Now, verse 13, here he says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And I think that cup at the Passover passed at that time. And our Lord took that cup. And I'm not sure, but what this is the one that he said, I'll not drink this cup with you. I'll drink it anew with you in my kingdom. But he drank that cup on the cross, my beloved, for you and me. Now we come to this very last section of this psalm here. And God is holy. And that's very important to see. That's the reason he had to die for us. I'll pay my vows. Now notice this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious was the death of Christ to God. And precious is the death of those who lay down their lives as martyrs in the great tribulation period. And many will. And I'm not sure of what we can use it today, though a man may not have lived for God, yet he's trusted him, and his death is precious in his sight. How wonderful this psalm is. Now today, we continue on in these psalms that are known as the Hallel Psalms. They began with Psalm 113 and go through 118. And they were sung at the three great feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And at the feast of Passover, the cup passed seven times. And between the passing, they would sing one of these hymns. And there are others that have suggested, other expositors, that they sang 113 and 114 before the meal, and then Psalm 115 through Psalm 118 after the meal. It doesn't make any difference how you arrange it. The one that they sang last would be Psalm 118. And that is the song that's mentioned in the gospel where it says, they sang a hymn and went out. Now, we'll be coming to that. But this Psalm 117 has only two verses. And it's actually the shortest that we have in the Bible, the shortest chapter. And because of that, there is a danger of passing over it. And yet, here is, to my judgment, one of the most startling psalms that we have. It's the shortest of the psalms, and certainly the shortest chapter. You just can't get any less than two verses in a chapter of the Bible. Now, I'm going to read it. And then we'll look at it. Oh, praise the Lord. That is, hallelujah. All ye nations, praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Now, this is a remarkable statement, so let's, let's not pass over this hurriedly. Here is a statement. 
and it's obvious that it's prophetic. It looks to the future. When all nations and races and tribes and tongues in every continent and in every nation will join in the praise of Jehovah and will worship him as the Lord. Now, is there anything like that that's in sight in the world today? Do you see any evidence of it in your neighborhood, friends, where the world is turning to God? Oh, there was a time at the turn of the century in the good old Victorian era and the gay 90s. My, they thought that the millennium was coming in. That was the day of post-millennialism, and it had its heyday. And a premillennialist in that day had to run for cover. They would ride him out of town on a rail. Anybody that would be pessimistic enough to say there was going to come a great tribulation period on the world. I have a question, though, to ask right now. All nations, praise Jehovah. And my question is, where are the nations that are singing praises unto Jehovah today? Where are the nations who worship and adore him and are in submission to Jehovah? That is a question that has a very easy answer. I'm confident that it would be very difficult for anybody to find a nation today. But this was the message of the prophets. Zechariah had said in Zechariah 2.11, "...many nations shall be joined unto the Lord." And then over in Zechariah 14.16, we have this statement, "...it shall come to pass." Everyone that's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So evidently, the worshiping of all nations is in connection with the turning of Israel to God. And the question now follows is this. When will all of this find fulfillment? Well, I think we have the answer right here in this little psalm. The how and when nations will praise Jehovah. Will you listen to this? For his merciful kindness is great toward us. Us? Yes, Israel. When God is gracious to Israel, that's coming in the future, the millennium, at the end of the great tribulation period when he comes to this earth and he's gracious to this nation, he'll be gracious to the nations of the earth. And at that time, by we're told in Micah seven twenty, thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. And we're told in Isaiah 54, 7 and 8, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So, my friend, you can see that this has reference to the day that is coming, but it's a day when... All nations are going to praise the Lord. Now, do we have any inkling of that in the New Testament? You remember that the council in Jerusalem, when they met, 
made up of all Jewish believers. They couldn't quite understand why the prophecies in the Old Testament weren't being fulfilled. And so James got up at the end of that conference and said, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And my friend, that's what God's doing today, taking a people out among the Gentiles in the church. Church made up of people of all races and tribes and tongues that have been brought together in one body. Now he says, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this, after what? Well, after he takes the church out of the world, I will return and I'll build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I'll set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. This is a psalm that looks to the future when every creature on this earth will render praise unto God. And that just doesn't happen to be true today. Now, it may be over in your little corner, but here in my little corner in Southern California, there's no evidence that this area is going to turn to God. And at that time, though, we read, God shall bless us, and all the earth shall fear him. That is Psalm 67, 7. This is a tremendous psalm. I tell you, this is like an atom bomb put right here in the midst of Psalms. And I tell you, when this little atom bomb explodes, you won't find a post-millennialist or an amillennialist anywhere, because it's blown them all away. This is a great little psalm. Don't pass it by. Now, Psalm 118, and now we come to a very remarkable psalm. One of the things makes it so remarkable is this. The next Psalm we take up, Psalm 119, is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 117 is the shortest. And between the shortest and the longest, we have here Psalm 118. That in and of itself makes it rather interesting. And it's the last, as we've already indicated, of these Hallel Psalms. And this was the psalm that that night when they gathered in the upper room, those men with the Lord Jesus, and they observed the Passover and yup yonder in that upper room with an air of informality and awe and sadness and joy and spontaneity and anticipation. And there they were gathered together. And when they had finished, and there on the dying embers of a fading feast, he reared a new one. You see, the Lord's Supper is not a wailing wall. It's not something that's morbid. There on the dying embers of a fading feast, he reared a new one. And out of the ashes of the past, he took bread and wine. He didn't use bronze or marble to put up a monument, but he made a monument out of the fragile and frail bread and wine. And you notice that at the Passover, they always had a lamb. But all we hear about here is the bread and the wine. You know why? Because the lamb was there serving them. 
He was on the way to the cross as the Lamb of God to die. And that bread and that wine was to speak of him until he comes again. I say to you that these are the psalms they sang, and this is the one that they sang that night where it says in the Gospels, they sang a hymn and went out. It was Psalm 118. Now, that ought to make it very important to us. And there that night, when that seventh cup went around, you remember he said, I'll not drink this cup with you. I won't drink this one. He passed it on. He says, I'll drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. But he'd already said in this psalm, I'll take the cup of salvation. He took it yonder on the cross. And he's the lamb that shed his blood. And this cup is the new covenant of his blood. And God's good. Therefore, this is to say that God's good to us. And so let's look at it. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he's good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. And let Vernon McGee now say that his mercy endureth forever. And let you and you, way out yonder, way out yonder in the Caribbean, way down yonder at the equator, way up yonder in Alaska, way across yonder in Okinawa, way over yonder in Europe, all of you folks. Let's all of us give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Listen to him. That's what he means. Let them now who fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. This is a great psalm. He sang it that night. He says, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear What can man do unto me? Our Lord went to the cross, friends, without fear. Oh, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet the mystery of it all was that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, verse 7, The Lord taketh my part with those who help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Have you learned that? That is a marvelous lesson. A very prominent attorney here in Los Angeles. He's well known. And he's known as an outstanding Christian. He told me, he said, that when I was a young Christian, my Christian life was almost ruined. I got my eye on a man, and that man failed me. And I found out I'd made a mistake. You don't put confidence in man. The psalmist says here it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And when he sang that, he looked around on 11 men. One of them had already gone to betray him. But those 11 men were going to be scattered like sheep that night. Don't put your confidence in man, friends. They'll let you down. Put your confidence in the Lord. Now, he says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compass me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. 
And that nation, Rome, made up of a polyglot of people, they nailed him to a cross. And that nation, the day they put him on that cross, that nation was doomed. And the great world empire that had existed for a millennium, its days were numbered, and it was soon to pass off the stage of human events. Yet to come back, by the way, by the way of Antichrist. Now, I want to drop down in this psalm. It's such a wonderful one, though. I hate to pass over any of the verses. But verse 14, "...the Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation." Now, this is quite wonderful. In fact, all of this is quite wonderful here. And in this section here, why you have praise for deliverance, a song of salvation. How wonderful it is. And we read on, "...the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly." The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Then listen to this, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Reference now to resurrection, but there's something else here also. They're going to survive as a nation too, by the way. The Lord hath chastened me very much, but he hath not given me over unto death. That is, he came back, and the 37th of Ezekiel makes it clear that he'll open the graves and bring them out of the nations of the world. Now he says in verse 20 and 21 here, he says, "...this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter." Now, what is the gate of the Lord? Well, the Lord Jesus made it clear. He said, "...I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved." Now, that door was the door to the sheepfold. He said again, "...I'm the way, the truth, and the life." No man cometh to the Father but by me. It's a tremendous statement. Then he moves on here. Verse 21, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. Now we have another figure of speech. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. Now this is a stone that refers to Christ. He himself, in Matthew 21, verse 42 made it clear. And Peter, in First Peter, the second chapter, verses 6 and 8. I'll not turn to these. Now, he's not only here the gate and the stone, but notice verse 24 here. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, what day is he talking about? Some 24-hour day? No, the word day can be used for a period of time. It can be used for a 24-hour day, and it can be used for a peculiar type of thing. It could be most anything. This is the day of the automobile, for instance. It could be used like that. Well, what day is he referring to here? Well, this is the day which the Lord had made. We're talking about salvation. That day's already been 2,000 years long, and we'll rejoice in it. Rejoice in the day of salvation. Now, beginning with 25, here we go again with the hallelujahs. Hosanna! I beseech thee, O Lord, save now. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that 
cometh in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Now, this means that the Lord's Supper is not a wailing wall. I repeat that. We forget that. This is the cup he drank that you and I, our joy might be full. Now, verse 27, God is the Lord who has shown us light. Now, he's light also. Bind the sacrifice with cords even under the horns of the altar. He's on the cross. You see, for you and me, thou art my God, and I'll praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. Friends, I wish it were possible for me to somehow or another express to you what I'd like to express of how you and I today ought to praise the Lord. You know, this little fellow, I'm cabined and cribbaged and contained in this flesh. I've got the hang-ups and all of these things, but I would just like to open up like a flower and express my praise and thanksgiving to my God, oh, my friend, to fall down and worship Him today, to praise His name and to glorify Him. That's all important. Why He loved me. He gave Himself for me. Paul could say, and he loved me. And therefore, John could say we love him because he first loved us. Then Peter says, whom having not seen, he loved. Oh, my friend, may your love and my love go out to him. Praise and adoration. Now, that brings us to the 119th Psalm. We are now halfway through the Bible, which means actually... We're a little over halfway in our Through the Bible program, and we will be dealing with several books that we're going to take a little more time with him. But this middle psalm that we come to now is a praise to the Word of God. I wish that I could think of some sort of celebration that we could have as we've come now halfway in the five-year program. But very candidly, I can't think of anything other than the 119th Psalm, longest chapter in the Bible. And it has in it just about 176 verses. Every verse, with the exception of about two, and I think the Word of God's mentioned in those verses, all is praise to the Word of God. All that you and I might put in emphasis today upon the Word of God We need, as believers, to put the emphasis where it should be put today. There's too much emphasis today on programs and methods and ceremonies and church activities. The emphasis should be upon the Word of God. That's the only thing God has promised to bless. He didn't promise to bless me. He never promised to bless this program. He never promised to bless any church. He has promised to bless his word. Let's get it out, friends. Now, the mechanics of the psalm, the arrangement of it is indeed interesting. It was done, of course, with a great deal of care. It's an acrostic, but an acrostic that's a little different from any that we've had before. Instead of having one verse, 
that begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and you will find that instead of one verse, there's eight verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, He, Vau, Zion, Keth, Yod, Chaf, Lamech, Mem, Nun, Samech, Ayin, and Pei, Sadik, and I better quit right there. All the way through, friends, why we have the Hebrew alphabet. I knew it at one time, but been a long time since I studied Hebrew. But the orderly arrangement here is quite wonderful. And that gives us 176 verses, the largest number that you have in the Word of God. Now, there have been those that have made a great deal of the numbers. The eight, of course, is the key number, because under each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22, there are eight verses that begin with that particular letter of it. Now, the number eight is an interesting number. I don't want to labor this type of a point, but it's interesting. Eight in Scripture is actually the number of life from the dead. You see, it was on the eighth day that the Lord Jesus came back from the dead. First day of the week. It was after the Sabbath, you see. Sabbath is the seventh day. And on the eighth day, the first day of the week, he came back from the dead. And this is a psalm that exalts the Word of God. And the very interesting thing is that God says these people that the world thinks God's through with them, the nation Israel. He's not through with them. And Paul made that very clear over in Romans in the 11th chapter. Verse 15, he says, "...for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead?" I think that's interesting. God is not through with them. As the Lord Jesus came back from the dead, these people are to be brought back as a nation in the millennium. And at that time, as we saw last time, why God would, in a very special way, save nations. All the multitudes that are yet to be saved. Spurgeon used to say, God's going to win. They'll be more saved then there will be loss. I believe that with all my heart. Now, when you look around you today, it's different. Even a great many of our folk get rather excited when they go over to Israel today. They think it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Why, it's not, friend. We're not seeing it now. We're not seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. They have gone back, but that's not the fulfillment. In fact, they haven't turned to God yet. And the world hasn't turned to God yet. In fact, I took this little clipping out from a little paper that a man who's quite a scholar sends out. He sends me a copy of his little paper that he gets out to just a few folk. And here is a clipping that to me was amazing. And let me read it. Some Jewish immigrants to Israel from Russian Georgia have started a back-to-Georgia movement. They say they are shocked at the atheism and the lack of observance of the Jewish religion in Israel. 
Some Israelis suspect the movement is spearheaded by communist agents planted among the immigrants. Well, be that as it may, they probably are accurate in their criticism. There's no turning to God there. There's no more turning to God today in Jerusalem than there is in Los Angeles and probably in your hometown. But they will be received, life from the dead. And I think this number eight that exalts the Word of God is quite interesting, life from the dead. And my friend, if you get life from the dead, if you receive eternal life, the day it'll come through this book here, the Word of God, because we are begotten not by corruptible seed, but incorruptible of the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever, begotten by the Word of God that reveals Jesus Christ. So this exalts the Word of God, and this will bring liberty to you. It'll bring life to you. It'll bring joy to you. It'll bring blessing to you. And this poor nation of mine needs to get back to God, at least back as far as they were at one time. They've come a long ways since then. You've come a long ways, baby, but you need to get back to God and not farther from God but back to God. That is the way the movement should be today. Now, I want to look at this psalm, and there's so many verses. I'm sure you can see I wouldn't be able to touch all of them, and we are just going to probably lift out one or two in each one of these letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But before I do, let me just say another word concerning this psalm because it's meant a great deal to a great many folk. I find that I turn to it a great deal. It was said of John Ruskin. He wrote this when he was late in life. He says, It's strange that of all the pieces of the Bible which my mother taught me, that which cost me the most to learn, and which was to my childish mind most repulsive, the 119th Psalm has now become of all the most precious to me in its overflowing and glorious passion of love for the law of God. And William Wilberforce, the statesman who was converted in the Wesley movement, he wrote in his diary, he says, "...walk from Hyde Park Corner, repeating the 119th Psalm, in great comfort. My, how wonderful. If you can't sleep at night, don't count sheep, go count these letters of the Hebrew alphabet and read these verses. mean a great deal to you. Now let me begin reading, and I'll just lift out from time to time certain verses. We begin with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. "'Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord.'" Now, this is the verse I'd like to lift out. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Oh, to seek God with the whole heart, not half-heartedly. I get a little discouraged today with some folk. They start out with the Through the Bible program. Great deal of zeal at first. And then they begin to you know, to let down. And before long, they've dropped by the wayside. And 
They are not like the man. Blessed is the man that walketh not, standeth not, sitteth not. The one that just keeps on walking, just keeps on walking in the Spirit. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. Now, you'll find out also something that's quite interesting. It's said that there are ten different synonyms for the Word of God here. Well, be that as it may, I know there's some discussion and difference of opinion relative to that, but they think that the ten refer to the Ten Commandments, of course. Well, I'm not interested in pressing that at all, but the Word of God is spoken of here in many different ways. Now we come to the base section, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Well, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. And the thing that the young man should have is the word of God today. They teach them everything else in school except the Bible. Can't teach them the Bible, but we need to get the word of God to them, and that's very important. I read this letter from this young man that is with this Jesus-only group, and they are turning to the Word of God. And I'm just not criticizing them, friends. I'm not in that position to do that. And I feel that when they turn to the Word of God that we ought to rejoice. Verse 11 here says, "...thy word have I hidden in mine heart that I might not sin against thee." Now, a great many people think this means just to memorize it. Now, I believe in the memorization of Scripture. I think it's a wonderful thing. But you know, some of the meanest little brats that I've seen in Sunday school were little brats that could stand up and quote a hundred verses of Scripture. I think, frankly, what it means is this, Thy word have I hidden in my heart, which means I obey it. That's the important thing. It's not that you will be able to stand up and by rote, be able to give verse after verse. Now, that's wonderful. I hope you won't misunderstand me that I'm criticizing that. I believe in that. I think it's a great program that several men are carrying on today, getting young people to memorize the Word of God. But we also need to recognize that this means more than that. It means to obey it. That's what it means to hide it in your heart. Now we come down to the Gimel section, and verse 18 says, "...open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, or out of thy word." This is the verse that I used to begin the Through the Bible program years ago when I was teaching it, first of all, in a little church that needed painting on the side of a red clay hill down in Georgia. This is the verse that I used, and I used it for years. And I don't know why I didn't start out with this verse this time when we went through. It's a good one. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law or thy word. So maybe we should pick it up for the last half of the five-year program. Let's do that. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Then, over in the Dalit section, verse 25, My soul clingeth to the dust. Revive me according to thy word. And you know, today, the tendency is a pull downward. 
Everything pulls us down. Television, a marvelous instrument that could be used for God, but it doesn't do anything in the world but pull you down. Everything's geared in this world to pull you down. My soul cleaneth to the dust. That's the way we gravitate, all of us. Not only will our body fall downward, but our soul is pulled downward in the world. And how can we overcome it? Revive me according to thy word. My friend, that's another reason we take the five-year program of going through the Bible. If I can get people to stay in the Word of God five years, it'll keep a lot of folk out of sin. It's the thing that'll revive us and lift us up. Verse 33, we come now to the Hay section. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I'll keep it unto the end. Oh, to follow on with God, running the race with patience, looking unto Jesus today. And we come now to 41. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. And God's mercy is channeled in through us. The pipe that brings it to us is the word of God. And therefore he says in verse 47, I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. Do you have joy, friends, in reading the word of God? Do you love the Word of God? Oh, if you don't, why don't you ask God? I did it for years. Lord, give me a love for your Word. I wasn't brought up in a home where I heard the Word of God. It took me a long time to become interested in it. We need to have that. Now, verse 49, Remember the Word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Down into the Keth section, Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. And then verse 62, this is tremendous. At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous ordinances. Friends, in the middle of the night, have you ever thanked God for his word? Well, wake up tonight and thank him, will you, for his word. Verse 69, The proud have forged a lie against me, but I'll keep thy precepts. With my whole heart, their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. They need to go on a diet, these critics that we have today, and they may die of heart trouble. So what we need to do is stay close to the Word of God. It's good for your heart. It's marvelous for heart trouble, the Word of God. Verse 73, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Now, God made us. He knows what we need. We need his word. And that's what the psalmist is asking for here. I notice that some of the automobile dealers and the makers of automobiles says, take your car to the dealer. He's the one that knows it. We made it. We know how to fix it. Well, that, I guess, is pretty good advice. So you take yourself to the Lord. He made you and come to his word. He knows what's good for you. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy Word is settled in heaven. I've preached on that many times. You know, the Word of God is up yonder in heaven. That's where the original copy is. I believe in the clean air verbal inspiration of that copy. And I think I got a pretty good copy of it right down here, by the way. And the Word of God is settled in the heavens. Heaven and earth may pass away, but he's up in the heavens where he is 
it'll never pass away. And then verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Do you love the Word of God? And then verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I used to tell the young folk in class when I was teaching Bible synthesis and we'd come to this psalm, I'd always tell him, I said, don't you ever give me that verse. I have more understanding than all my teachers. I said, when you do that, you're going to get an F in the course. Now, will you notice verse 105 is one that many of you have heard all your lives. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then verse 113, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. How much time do you spend reading the newspaper, reading trash in comparison to what you spend reading the Bible? He says, I hate vain thoughts. If you spend time with the Word of God, the day will come when you'll not be interested in a lot of this trash. Verse 126, it's time for thee, Lord, to work. For they have made void thy law. And I feel like that's a good prayer for today. I pray this prayer. Lord, the world's forgotten you and has forgotten your word. And help us get it out today and make the world conscious of your word. Verse 129, Thy testimonies are wonderful. Therefore doth my soul keep them. And the entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. Since I come in under that class, why, I want the word. Verse 137, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Then verse 145, I cried with my whole heart, Hear me, O Lord, I'll keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, Save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. God, when he saves you, wants to put you on a diet, a new diet, and that's the Word of God. Verse 154, Plead my cause and deliver me. That is, revive me according to thy Word. The only thing that can revive us is the Word of God. Dwight L. Moody said that the next great revival will be a revival of the Word of God. I hope that's true. We're seeing an interest in it today. Verse 161, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. In spite of men, the thing that he had more respect for and awe of was the word of God and not the rulers of this world. Now, verse 176, the last verse. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandment. Don't forget his word. And as long as the word of God is in your heart, my friend, long as there's that longing down in your heart that you want to come to God, the shepherd's out looking for you. And he'll put you on his shoulder and bring you back into the fold. This is a glorious, wonderful song glorifies the Word of God, and the Word of God is the foundation of all liberty. And it reveals the Savior. And if the Son make you free, you will be free indeed. Oh, the liberty 
that the Word of God will give to the heart and life today. May God bless you and bless our nation. Now today, friends, we come to a new section of the book of Psalms. And when I say a new section, I do not mean one of the major divisions. We have seen that the book of Psalms, longest book in the Bible, 150 Psalms, it's divided like a penitude. And we have a Genesis section, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we are now in the Deuteronomy section. But all the way through, we've seen that the Psalms break down again into small packages. And there are series as we go through. Sometimes there'll only be two or three Psalms. Sometimes there'll be a half a dozen of them. Now we've come at Psalm 120 to one of these series. A fact of the matter is, why we have come to a package that is 15 psalms, beginning with Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134. They're called the Song of Degrees. That's the way I'm sure it is in your Bible. Actually, what we have here is, as Martin Luther translated it, the gradual psalms are a song of the higher choir. And an outstanding Hebrew scholar has translated it, the songs of the pilgrim caravans are on the homeward marches. Now, these 15 psalms were traveling songs, and they were used, I think, in two different ways. When the captives returned from Babylon, they used these psalms. They sang them on the way. And this same word here of going up, you find it back in Ezra, the seventh chapter, verse 9. It says, "...for upon the first day of the first month began he," that is, Ezra, to go up from Babylon. And that's the word, to go up. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Now, the most common use of these psalms was like this, that three times a year God required and commanded all the males to go up to Jerusalem to worship. And when they went up to Jerusalem, they took their families along. And as they ascended to Jerusalem from every direction from Jerusalem, actually out to all parts of the world of that day where they were scattered, why, they would sing these psalms on the way to Jerusalem. One day it would be one of the psalms. The next day they came closer and higher. And as they approached Jerusalem, why, they would continue to sing the psalms until they came to the last one, the 134th. And you find them standing in the sanctuary of the Lord, singing praises to God. Now, these are songs of ascents. They'd sing them along the route. And the families, of course, would join the men, and they went up then by families. And they're called, therefore, the song of the 
pilgrim caravans. Now, you'll recall that we have one incident in the life of the Lord Jesus from the time of his virgin birth to the time he began his ministry when he was 30 years of age. Dr. Luke gives us that when they went up to Jerusalem. You will recall when he was 12 years of age, they were returning and they'd gone up for one of the feasts. And these three feasts, probably I should label them, they would be Passover and they would be Pentecost and tabernacles. Now, at one of those feasts, why, they went up. And on the way back, they were out a day's journey. And that place is pretty well known today. That's where all the caravans, when they went to Jerusalem, they'd meet there, go up together. It was a time of fellowship, renewing acquaintanceship, talking over old times, telling about how things were getting along. And then they'd all go up together, singing these psalms. You remember the Lord Jesus, they missed him one day out when he was 12, and they had to return back to Jerusalem. Now, these psalms have another very wonderful meaning. And by the way, someone may say, are you sure that this is the way it was done? We have a very interesting statement made in Psalm 122, and it says in verse 3, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. Yes, they went up three times a year at these great feast days to return thanks to God, to worship Him and to offer sacrifices there. Now, we find a very wonderful spiritual meaning. I didn't want to say that word, and yet there is a great spiritual meaning here. And the very interesting thing that many of the writers of the Talmud pointed it out. And the thing they pointed out was this, that their life is like this. We come to God as a sinner. We're away from him, separated from him, alienated from him. And then we come to him. And as we come to him in salvation, we come to him in our sanctification, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of him. And so it's a constant going up. And we're climbing a spiritual way and Friends, you and I ought to be farther along today than we were last year, and we ought to recognize that. Now we begin this journey with Psalm 120. Now, the pilgrim that we are looking at here and his family, we are going to find out where he lives. So let me read Psalm 120. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord. And he heard me, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. 
I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, this is one of the most marvelous psalms that we've seen, and it's relevant to the present hour, and especially for the nation Israel. Now, will you note this, because this is very important to see. Now, this pilgrim lived, he says, in Meshach in Kedar. Now, who is Meshach? Meshach was one of the sons of Japheth. You find that back in Genesis 10, verse 2. And from Japheth came the Gentile nation. And friends, that's where Israel is today, scattered among the Gentiles throughout the world. They dwell in Meshach. And Kedar, he was a son of Ishmael. Does that tell you anything? He was living among the Arabs. That's rather up-to-date, is it not? That's where he lived. And it actually was not a very good neighborhood. He really lived in a ghetto because there were a bunch of gossips around there. Had mean tongues. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Not a very good neighborhood. He'd been maligned, lied about. And I do believe that no people have been probably lied about and maligned and persecuted as the Jew has. Now, we are hearing a great deal today about minority groups. Now, the very interesting thing is the Jew's been able to make his way among all nations, among all people. But he's been criticized. Anti-Semitism is something that is quite real. But he's been able to survive all of it. And he's a minority group among the Gentiles and among the peoples of the world today. So he's lived in the place of gossip and of quarrels and of tensions and problems and burdens. And I'm not sure, but what that is a picture of you and me. And now the time has come to go to Jerusalem. And it's a time when you pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and you start toward Jerusalem. He left his burdens at home. And so he left his Meshach and he left his Kedar and he now goes to Jerusalem. And he lived in a world of war. He says, "'My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace.'" I am for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. That's rather up-to-date, isn't it? It's a wonder the high critic today who likes to move everything in the Bible up-to-date, that is, give it a late dating. It's too bad that he didn't have someone over there today write this, because it's very much up-to-date, by the way. Now he's going up to Jerusalem to worship, and Jerusalem is the city of peace. Sure isn't today. It's rather a dangerous place to be, by the way. But it was different then, and it's going to be different in the future. Now he's on the way up. We come to Psalm 121. Now he's come from some direction, north, east, south, and west, every direction. Now I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And I think that it would be well to change that here, and I can't quite understand why some of the 
translations that have attempted to make changes haven't made one at this particular point here. Because it should be, it's a question. This man's not looking to the hills. He's looking to God. He makes it very clear. Shall I lift my eyes up to the hills? From whence cometh my help? Then he answers it. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now you see the pilgrim is drawing nigh to Jerusalem. And any direction you come to Jerusalem, friends, you're going to come through the hills. First time I came to Jerusalem, I came from the east, across the Jordan River. And you come up some pretty rugged country. The second time I came from Tel Aviv and drove up by bus that time. It was a car before, and the hills were hillier. And I've come from the south, and I've come from the north. And friends, any direction you approach Jerusalem, you're in the hills. And so this man now has come inside of the hills of Judea. And as he comes inside of the hills of Judea, there are places where heathen worshipped on top of the hills. That's where they put their altars. He says, Shall I lift up mine eyes to the hills? From whence cometh my help? doesn't come in that direction at all. And that, I think, is something very important to note. I'd like to read in this connection Jeremiah 3.23. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And that's what this pilgrim now, as he draws near to Jerusalem, then he goes on to say, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. And that word really, he won't suffer you to totter. You know, those of us that are senior citizens today, we begin to totter just a little. I notice I'm not as sure-footed as I once was. He's going to hold you up, by the way. He who keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he who keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And I'd like to give a little different translation of this, if you don't mind, because I think it brings out something quite wonderful here. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. Thy keeper will not slumber. Behold, neither slumbereth nor sleepeth the keeper of Israel. Jehovah is thy keeper. Jehovah is thy shade upon the right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall keep thee from all evil. He shall keep thy soul. Jehovah shall keep thy going out and thy coming in from henceforth and forever. Now, this is quite a wonderful section you can see here. And now he's not looking to the hills for strength. He's looking to the Lord. He's looking to Jehovah. And Jehovah's his keeper. And you notice the word that we have, verses 7 and 8, is... The Lord shall preserve thee. That has to do with the wonderful keeping power of God. He preserveth you. And you remember Peter put it like this? Kept by the power of God. Now, there are two ways of preserving anything. You can preserve anything like fruits or vegetables. You can preserve them in sugar or in vinegar. Those are the two ways. And there are a lot of Christians that are preserved both ways, by the way. There are some Christians preserved in sugar. They're nice, sweet folk. 
and the others that have been preserved in vinegar, and they're not quite so, you know, wonderful. The pilgrim now is moving toward Jerusalem along the route, and there are the hills. The Mount of Olives is there, you see. Mount Zion now, and he's camped along the route. Because, you see, Howard Johnson and the Holiday Inn and Ramada Inns just hadn't got there to put up motels, and so they just camped along the way. And they're looking to Jehovah to keep them. And as they move on, why, he's going to come now in sight of Jerusalem. This is quite wonderful as we move along here. And there's something else I think that we should notice. He says, "...my help now cometh from Jehovah." Oh, what a glorious assurance that is. And he's not going to let me totter and fall. And there's a great deal in Scripture about that. Proverbs 3.26 says, "...for the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot being taken." Won't let you fall. And in Psalm 37, we've already seen that, "...though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand." And then again he says, "...he keepeth the feet of his saints." Wonderful. And you noticed he washed feet also. And now we're told in, the, I suppose, the last benediction you have in the Bible, it's in the little epistle of Jude, "...now unto him that is able to keep you from not falling, stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy." To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. He's able to keep us. He's the keeper of Israel, and he's the keeper of his own today. You notice he keeps but day and night. He doesn't slumber or sleep. And the sun or the moon won't hurt you. That is, they came up at certain seasons, and that sun over there is hot, and he'd keep them in the heat. But what about the moon by night? Somebody says, now, you don't believe that kind of thing, do you? Well, I don't know. You know, the word for the moon is luna. Can you think of a word that comes from that? Yeah, you're right. It's the word lunatic. It drives a lot of people crazy. Somebody says the moon doesn't affect us, does it? Well, it affects the tide. And I don't know... I can remember when I was young, and I used to take a girl out on a date. And I want to tell you, friends, it sure made it quite unusual to get in the moonlight. The moon has an effect on us, and he can keep you. He can keep you, whether it's the sunshine or the moonlight. Say, this is a very wonderful psalm. Now, in Psalm 122... We are looking at the Pilgrim's Psalms. We began with Psalm 120. It goes through Psalm 134. There are actually 15 of these Pilgrim's Psalms. Now, in Psalm 120, we saw this man in distress, in a time of trouble. He was in a place that the neighborhood was bad, and he was being talked about, lied about. He actually is living in a ghetto. And now he leaves that, takes his family and goes up to Jerusalem. 
And in Psalm 121, he comes in sight of the hills of Judea. Then in Psalm 122, why, he comes in sight of Jerusalem. And we see here the wonderful city of Jerusalem, and it's the place where the tribes come up. And I probably ought to say a word relative to Psalm 122 before we pass on. Actually, it's a millennial psalm, and it looks on to the future. I actually do not think that it had anything to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. It could only refer, I think, to the future. It's a beautiful psalm when we see it as a prophecy, looking forward to the day when all the tribes will come up to Jerusalem and assemble themselves. The question arises, where are the lost tribes? Well, they're not lost here. (laughs) They're not lost here, friends. They're those that call them the ten lost tribes, and they try to identify themselves with Great Britain and with those of us in this country. It sounds good. There's not a word of truth in it at all. No scriptural basis and no fabric of fact at all. Now, will you notice, he says here, again, let me read it, "...our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem." Jerusalem is builded as a city that's compact together, whether the tribes go up, all twelve of them, the tribes of the Lord, under the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. I think it's looking forward to that day when they'll come together to go up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, they've been out of that city a long time. They actually don't really have it today. They can't build a temple there where the Mosque of Omar is. All of these sacred places are pretty well covered by Gentiles. And Hosea had said that. In Hosea 3, 4, he says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, and without teraphim. And certainly they have abode many days. But there's going to be a millennial Jerusalem, and this is it. 